Hey, bro, what's up? Uh, you guys good to go? Ready to record? Yeah, I hope you don't mind. I got Autumn with me. Yeah, no, that's not a big deal. Say hi, Autumn. Hey, baby. Oh, she's so cute. Wait, what's wrong with her eyes? What do you mean? What's wrong with her eyes? What did you do? Do anything. What's wrong with your eyes? What's wrong with your eyes? Why do y'all have mirrors for eyes? We're going. You only need mirrors to see. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by movie monster boy Aaron and me, the cowardly co-host Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across the ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Unfortunately, we are not doing Event Horizon again. We are doing Oculus, which, oh boy. This one spooked you? This was a spooky one for the old coward here. <laughs> yes. Um, but yes, I do actually have my infant daughter with me right now, sitting right next to me. So if you hear any babbles or cries or anything, that that's going to be her. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> and with that, it's just me and you this episode, Aaron. Uh, yep. Halloween is over with. We say that. Halloween is this weekend, peek behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah. We're just recording things ahead of time. <laughs> we got to get one more in before uh, Thanksgiving and then the Christmas season. So yep. uh, we decided to do Oculus. Uh, with that in mind, we are going to first do our recommendations portion of the show like usual. We recommend each other other horror media that we've consumed, be it other movies, books, TV shows, video games, comics, etc. We recommend it to each other and hopefully your audience hears something that you want to go check out. So with that, uh, I'm guessing you have a bit to talk about. Yes. So what 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 are some of your recommendations? Like I just mentioned a second ago, Halloween weekend's coming up. So I've been chugging through a lot of horse shit. Let's start with the new, more interesting stuff that I've seen in a theater. So first thing I'd like to mention is I... I, was, I thought you were going to bring up Dune. I was like, this is not a Dune podcast. <laughs> No, I have seen Dune. I have seen it twice, yeah, but uh, this is not a Dune podcast. No, I got lucky enough that timing, schedule, etc. worked out that I caught Titan jealous. for like I'm the so one jealous. week it was in theaters near us. This, of course, is Julia Ducournau's new movie. Uh, we covered her first movie, Raw, earlier in our show run. This new one stars Agatha Russell and Vincent Linden, who I really only know from La Anne, a.k.a. Hate. So the one sentence descriptor of this movie that is officially on IMDb is like a man is reunited with his son after 10 years of, you know, him being missing. Cool. Sounds good. Really? That's all that they have on IMDb? The like Twitter internet film side of things is going to describe it as, oh, it's the movie about the woman who fucks a car <laughs> and has a car baby. And let's just say it's both of those things. Okay. I think I enjoyed it. Let me, let me back up. I was entertained by it the entire time. I didn't always understand what the fuck I was looking at. It definitely took me a while to like really kind of chew on the themes and kind of think about what that movie's trying to say and what Duke Cornell's going for. I mean, Raw's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah, I would say so. In terms of what it's trying to say and its messaging, it's not super dense and obtuse, right? This movie's a little bit under the surface just because of how much insane shit is happening on the surface. So, I mean, this is a movie that is like definitely about 
identity and perception and gender and body autonomy, auto autonomy, see what I did there? Unconditional (laughs) love and grief and kind of learning to move past defining oneself by past trauma. Like when I was writing my notes, that was the best descriptor that I can give of the movie without really massively spoiling elements of it or just having to sit here and explain the entire plot to you. Yeah, right. I would really recommend if you have a stomach for like really intense violence and really extreme themes body horror imagery just in general like if you can stomach all of that stuff i think this would be a movie worth checking out because the actual emotional core of this movie is intense but at the same time, it's kind of one of the, like, most wholesome fucking movies I've seen in a while as far as the themes that it's dealing with at the end of the day. It's fucked up. It's gross. It's violent. Yeah, I wasn't expecting wholesome as part of, like, one of your descriptors of this. Uh, there were two points in that movie where I, like, was kind of tearing up a little bit. I won't lie. I'm surprised how extreme it kind of affected yeah, me. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that, because even Raw had some pretty emotional beats for a movie about cannibalism. Yeah. But I, I didn't expect, like, Wholesome is just an interesting choice of a descriptor, I guess. And I guess it might make sense once you see the movie, but I don't really want to go any further with that. Yeah, I think Pixar when you say Wholesome. <laughs> well, in my head, Wholesome doesn't necessarily mean squeaky clean. Wholesome is more like the values of this movie or this moment or like what this is trying right. to convey are like kind of universally truthful and relatable elements. You know, like there is something at the core of that that is just a humanist. Yeah, what it means to universally be human. relatable yeah, thing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So that's all I'm going to say. There is wild shit in it. There is some extreme violence. There is definitely like lots of nudity and sex just wild shit that like it's gonna be hard getting that out of your head and just kind of scrubbing your eyes afterward but at the same time like there's a fucking dance party with a bunch of fireman bros dancing to pop music and it's kind of one of the most make you smile ear to ear like moments of the year right like there's just weird shit in it you know it really took me a while to kind of think about what all that movie's trying to do because I was very perplexed with it initially i like i said i was entertained by it the entire time it just really took me a minute to kind of think about like what is she trying to say and i know i am certainly missing some context and some experience and just relatability to this movie because this movie isn't necessarily made with me in mind or with my experience in mind right this movie is clearly made by like somebody who has a completely different type of life experience from me and that's that's kind of how i felt with raw so yeah i don't know if you've watched any but i'm interested to see if she'll put out any director's commentary on this because i remember us talking talking about when we covered Raw, it's interesting to listen to her go through the process of like explaining her movies. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like she's not contradicting herself. It's like she's working through it in live action in that moment. And it's it's just fascinating to hear her go through that process because on the surface it sounds contradictory, but what it actually is is just her working through her own creative drive or whatever you want to call it. So yeah, I would love to see her talk about it with this movie. 
And good for her in every way on that note, because I can't fucking imagine what this script looked like. Oh, Seriously, yeah. I cannot fucking imagine whoever she turned this script into that read it, what their initial reaction was. I thought it was incredibly interesting, and I'm very interested to watch it again with Heather to kind of see what her take is on it. And this is a thousand percent not a movie for everybody, but this is definitely a movie for a lot of people. It is one of the most wildly entertaining things that you'll see, for sure. That's all I'm really going to say, because to go any more into, like, what the actual plot is, is going to do a disservice to, like, what your emotional response is going to be to that movie. And when I tell you that this was a movie that every ten minutes I could not tell you where the fuck that movie was going, or, like, where it was going to end up, it's wild. So, that's all I will say about Titan. Again, definitely check that one out. I believe it is coming to disc fairly soon it is definitely already available to watch on vod if you want to pay that primo price to rent it but it should be available pretty soon and again like it won palm dior at con so i mean that that holds some weight regardless of how film snotty you might be or not that holds some weight so i think it's at least worth checking out if you're willing to like dip your toes into some extremity Second thing I'll mention is also one that I heard a lot of festival buzz about, and it ended up being a lot more straightforward and tame than I was expecting, and that's Lamb, which is the debut film by Valdemar Johansson. I've been hearing, I've been seeing a lot about this too, but I, I can't get a read on the reception of this movie. So I will a thousand percent say it is an A24 movie. It is kind of the most exactly what you would expect from an A24 movie, but like a few other A24 movies, I think it was very, very mismarketed. The previews make it look like it is going to be a super dark and violent, fucked up horror movie. It's not. It's not at all. It's very much a like meditative and kind of beautifully poetic movie about loss and grief and coping, all kind of filtered through like an Icelandic folktale that we have just never heard of. Would you still label it as horror, though? I would label it very fringe. Very, very fringe edge of horror. Like, yeah. there is some horrific shit in the movie, but it is very much a folk horror kind of thing, but it's less so. Not like the ritual is a folk horror. Not at all. Like, not that's, all. that's, that's still that a intense. capital H horror movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. not that intense. It's not the ritual. It's not the witch. It's not Eyes of Fire. It's not anything like that. It is way more like fairy tale some kind of Aesop's fable lesson to be learned kind of thing but it was gorgeous the performances were great Numi Rapaz is the lead in it and she's always fantastic Valdemar Johansson has worked as a grip and an electrician and an FX tech for basically everything that's come through Iceland in the last few years so like he worked on Rogue One he worked on Game of Thrones he worked on Noah he worked on Oblivion so he's done tech behind the scenes stuff on a lot of these movies and this is his debut film and you know this was a strong enough first film and interesting enough and like daring in what it's trying to do and like just the general premise that I will definitely check out whatever his next movie is. Did I really love this movie? Am I going to buy this movie when it comes out? Would I rush to tell people like, oh, this is the best thing? Not necessarily, but I think it's interesting for sure. And if you want to put something on that, I guarantee you, you've never seen anything like that movie before. If you want at least something that is different, check it out. But, you know, it gave enough currency to Johansson that I would watch whatever he puts out next. 
Next new thing, it is on streaming, it is on Shutter right now, is VHS 94. So this is the fourth entry into the VHS found footage anthology series. Oh shit, I didn't realize there were four of them. I thought there were only two. Yep. Okay. Now there there are four. The third one was called VHS Viral. Okay, yeah, I do remember that. So this one's called VHS 94. It is all supposed to be sketches that took place in 94. So it's a lot of period clothing and VHS aesthetic like all the other ones. Chloe Akuno, Simon Barrett, Timo Tajanto, and Stephen Kostansky and Ryan Prowse are kind of the ones that directed all the segments. Stephen Kostansky, we love from Psycho Goreman. He really only directed a fake commercial, but it is one of the funniest fucking things I've seen all year. Let's just say it's like a late night infomercial for a kitchen appliance that's totally fucking stupid. <laughs> but I laugh my ass off when it just cuts into that in the middle of one of the other segments. Ryan Prowse directs one that is a group of white supremacists, yuck yuck who have a compound out in the middle of the woods and they're planning to attack some government building kind of Oklahoma City style and they have a let's just say specifically supernatural method about how they're going to do that uh, so that one was kind of fun ultimately guessing it doesn't end well for them <laughs> No, no, none of these end well. Yeah. Simon Barrett directs one that all takes place at a funeral home where there's a creepy overnight wake where nobody shows up, but, you know, spoopy things start happening. Oh, that's a creepy fucking premise. Yeah. So these last two are, these are generally the ones that people consider to be the best ones. Chloe Kuno directs one that's just called Storm Drain. And it's about a local news reporter investigating a local figure known as the Rat Man who lives in the sewers. <laughs> she goes down the sewers and let's say she finds more than what she was bargaining for. And uh, I just want to say, Hail Ratma. Hail Ratma. And then the last one was directed by Timo Tajanto, who's one of these great Southeast Asian directors who's pumping out a lot of crazy shit right now. This is a first person kind of, remember that scene from Robocop where he's waking up in the middle of them programming him and you're seeing everything from his perspective mm -hmm. basically that but a horror movie and that's all i'll really say it is wild crazy extreme violence so that one is definitely fun so vhs 94 wasn't amazing but it is certainly i think the most consistently good outside of the wraparound the wraparound on this one's terrible i've never been a fan of the wraparounds and really any of the other ones what's the wraparound anyway, the wraparound in this one is like a bunch of SWAT people busting into this giant abandoned mini mall and there's like some cult that has a bunch of people held hostage there. And so it's just them wandering through this facility and finding all these tapes playing on TVs. And so it's just kind of cutting between that and the wraparound. Like the resolution to it is not that interesting. The acting in it's terrible. I was not a fan of the wraparound. But overall, I think this is maybe the most consistent in like the quality of the shorts compared to the other VHS series. I mean, that's the nice thing about an anthology in general is it's kind of that Mitch Hedberg joke about grapes. If one's bad, just try another. So VHS has been kind of hit or miss. There are definitely some standout entries throughout the three movies that have come out so far, but I think this is like the most consistently
certainly interesting. So that's it as far as new stuff is concerned. And then from here, I just watched a bunch of old trash, bro. There's nothing wrong with that. I watched a bunch of late 90s to early aughts teenage slasher trash. Partly because I was trying to catch up with the Austerian podcast, uh, which is pretty fun and fantastic. Oh, is this why you watched Urban Legend? Listeners, off recording, Aaron texted me that he watched Urban Legend, and I was wondering why the fuck he was watching Urban Legend. Oh, I watched way more than that, bro. So, it's very interesting because this is that weird period of time between Scream. Scream, like, happened. That was the defining point of the late 90s as far as horror was concerned. It was, once again, Wes Craven for fucking three decades in a row. Wes Craven, like, redefining the genre, right? The only other movies I've seen that seemed to come close to sort of capturing what Scream was going for was I Know What You Did Last Summer, and I don't know if this is just because, like, I grew up around it or if it did have an impact, honestly, Urban Legend as well. Those two were, like, the quote-unquote spin-off, rip-offs, whatever you want to yeah. call it, from Scream that actually seemed to be okay. Those are some of the other big ones, right? But there were a ton. There were a ton. Yeah, no, I remember a lot of them coming. Yeah, there were a ton of hot teenage slasher kind of movies that came out in the wake of Scream. 2001, obviously 9-11 happens, but around 2001 to 2002, that's where the shift kind of happens, right? There's definitely that post 9-11 switch where everything starts to become a lot more cynical. And then we've got that switch in 2003 and 4 as the war is starting up where everything really shifts and becomes more of that early aught stuff that we've talked about before where it's a lot of overseas remakes it's a lot of torture porn yeah. it's a lot of stuff like that what was it 2002 or 3 the ring dropped oh the ring the grudge the eye like there were yeah. a ton of those j-horror and I guess j-horror k-horror c-horror just asian horror in general like a lot of those remakes that got remade yeah well and I, I just remember like going to blockbuster and like from like 2002 to 2005 or 6 that's what lined up the uh, walls in the horror section were like j-horror and then you had saw come out and that was everywhere yeah and then hostile so yeah this is that weird six to seven years of time where it was just a ton of these kind of movies and it is very interesting to kind of watch this in the context of everything is generally fine in the world. There is no weird background subtext happening in these movies. These teenagers generally all have pretty good to decent lives. Like, there's not really any background trauma happening in the world in these movies. Like, you have in a lot of stuff throughout the aughts where that post-9-11, you know, awareness and just anxiety definitely set in. So, so started with I Know What You Did Last Summer, uh, 1997. Kevin Williamson, same guy who wrote Scream. This was kind of his other franchise yep. that he started. I knew it had a tie. Yeah. yeah, I knew it had a tie in somehow. This was based on like a popular teen slasher book. You know, Kevin Williamson obviously went on to do The Faculty and The Following and Vampire Diaries, right? So he's still working. There's about to be another fucking Scream movie coming out. So he's still going. But it's wild looking at this one where I'm considering this 
this to be like, okay, spinoff of Scream. We have Scream. Scream is its own thing. And you would think that, like, it would just be diminishing returns as far as the cast goes. And the cast would just become, like, more and more low quality. The cast of all these movies kind of gets interesting. Finding people who, like, oh, you are now somebody. You have been in big things. This was clearly before all of that. And I know what you did last summer is a perfect example of, ooh, this was kind of when all these people were at the top of their game. So Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Freddie Prinze Jr., Ryan Phillippe. Arguably, this is probably the peak of all of their careers. And granted, they're all still working, but Jennifer Love Hewitt's trapped in Hallmark Christmas movie hell, and Freddie Prinze Jr. is mostly doing voice work now, which, you know, if that's what he likes, cool, fine. Yeah, I was going to say, he seems like he's happy because he's married to Sarah Michelle yeah. Geller and she seems retired, and he just seems like he chills, plays D&D with his friends and voice acts. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think he's. I think he's all right. He's maybe pulled back from like acting, acting, but he definitely does a lot of voice acting for sure. Yeah, but Anne Heche is in this one. I forgot about her. Bridget Wilson Sampras is in this. Her. Johnny Galecki was in this, which he's been in shit since he was a kid. But it's just wild knowing that, bro, you're gonna be in one of the most obnoxious fucking sitcoms that's gonna make you a gajillion goddamn dollars, and there's gonna be fucking bazinga t-shirts at Walmart. Some reason I thought Josh Hartnett was uh, and I know what you did last summer mm-hmm. as well. Nope. He is in the faculty. Yeah, he's in the faculty. He just seems like he'd be perfect for this kind of movie. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, from there, I moved on to Urban Legend. And I didn't necessarily watch these in this order, but I'm discussing them in the order in which they came out. So, I know what you did last summer was 97. Urban Legend is the next year. It's 98. This was directed by Jamie Blanks. This was one of his two big hit movies starring Alicia Witt from fucking Dune 1984, David Lynch, baby. <laughs> she played Alia and is all the best energy in that movie. And then, of course, we whiplash to Jared Leto. Womp, womp. Womp, womp. <laughs> and he's trying way too hard to be like hot, serious guy and is just kind of a drag in the movie. Rebecca Gayhart is in it, and she is delightful. She is definitely kind of one of those staple of the late 90s, early 2000s actresses that is still going. She was just, I mean, granted, very, very brief bit part in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but, I mean, she's still fucking acting. Michael Rosenbaum, who played Lex Luthor in Smallville. Joshua Jackson, Tara Reid. Robert England has a cameo. Uh, Loretta Devine is in it, kind of as like a security cop who becomes kind of crucial toward the end of the movie and she's kind of the connecting character that goes into urban legends final cut and then there's a danielle harris cameo in this as well where she's the goth roommate of uh, alicia witt's character so urban legend it's kind of fun it is kind of interesting how like the urban legends that the people are murdered by are kind of the weirdest you know soda and pop rocks explodes your guts kind of dumb there's way more urban legends than just that that you could kill somebody by but it's appropriately 90s it's wild going from whiplash of the soundtrack being fucking like marilyn manson to wow fucking zoot suit riot what the fuck is this soundtrack well and that's the thing too like for our, our younger listeners urban legends were 
I mean, it, it, the internet was around, but it was nowhere near. God damn it, you're making us sound old right now. Yeah, I know. It's creepy pastas, but before there was internet. <laughs> yeah, like the internet was there, but there wasn't like Reddit. It was like dial-up internet on AOL. But yeah, n- Urban Legends was such a 90s thing. Like That was shit me and my friends would talk about at sleepovers and stuff like that. And it's funny looking back on that movie being made because it's basically the same thing of like making a Slenderman movie now, yeah. which I know was done, but it's the same concept and and they actually made two movies out of it it was at the height of scream's popularity and at least the first one i do remember like having a little bit of a splash and made big enough splash to get a sequel so and honestly it's not the worst i enjoyed re-watching it for the first time since middle school then i watched final destination yep yeah <sighs> I'm not going to lie, dude. The beginning of the movie where he has the entire vision of the plane crash and all the things on the plane going wrong. Terrifying. That shit kind of made me anxious. I'm not going to lie because I've talked about on the show. I hate fucking flying. Me too. I'm claustrophobic. I hate flying. I hate the entire process of airplanes and like having to go through all the security and all the extra bullshit steps. You know, on one hand, that was the interesting thing watching. It's like, oh, this is pre 9-11 so of course these kids are like just walking right onto the plane and there's no security checks and they're not having to take off their fucking shoes uh, could you imagine if they tried to like time this movie to come out in the fall oh god yeah. <laughs> in yeah. 2001 it would have not come out what month did it come out in 2001 it came out in march of 2000 oh 2000 okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this was, you know, year before, but it was wild. Like all the plane shit, everything would be different in a year, you know, but I won't lie. The beginning did kind of get to me a little bit. I was breathing a little bit harder and just being like, uh, cause I just I fucking hate flying. Right. But the rest of the movie is ridiculous. This one was directed by James Wong, who did the one with Jet Li. You lie. I am nobody's bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't seen that movie in a long time. He also did Final Destination 3 and he did Dragon Ball Evolution, which put him. Ooh. In fucking director jail. (laughs) Yeah. So the cast for this one is Devin Sawa, Ali Larder, Sean William Scott, fucking Stifler, and uh, Tony Todd, friend of the show. It was fun. Like, I definitely, like, enjoyed that one enough because I think it's a well-made movie. The deaths are kind of fun, and that's, of course, what you're watching the movie for. And honestly, I was really surprised by how much I liked the score by Shirley Walker, who did basically most all the music for Batman the Animated Series. So the music in that movie was really fucking solid. So next from the same year was Urban Legends Final Cut. This one was directed by John Ottman and written by Scott Derrickson, who we've talked about fairly often on the show. So what's weird that I noticed between Urban Legends 1 and 2... Both are directed by guys who are not normally directors. They are both editor-slash-composers, and that is already, like, a really specifically weird combination that you work as an editor, but then you also do the music. John Ottman is mostly known for doing a lot of Brian Singer stuff, so he did X-Men and Superman Returns. He, like, won an Oscar a few years ago for that fucking Bohemian Rhapsody movie for editing. 
not their normal jobs. This is their one movie, and they both did a fucking Urban Legends movie. Interesting. So that was just like a weird, like, what is going on with this franchise? Well, like, how are they the ones that got tapped? Exactly. That? Like, right. It's interesting. Yeah. This one's got Ava Mendez, Anson Mount, before he was, you know, rugged stoic dude in fucking AMC TV shows and Inhumans. Anthony Anderson, Joey Lawrence. This one takes place at a film school, and it is the most unrealistic fucking film school experience ever it's it's laughable like it's it's insane right (laughs) you went to film school so you would know (laughs) what cracked me up is the bitter has been professor who steals one of his students short films I was like, who the fuck is this guy? I know this guy. What have I seen this dude in? Look him up on IMDb. It's fucking Hart Bachner, the guy who plays Ellis, the like cokehead Wall Street douchey guy from Die Hard. <laughs> hey, business is business. You use a gun, I use a fountain pen. What's the difference? Let's put it in my terms. You're here in a hostile takeover. You grab us for some green mail, but you didn't expect some poison pill was going to be running around in the building. Am I right? Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight. That fucking guy, right? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that, that's who that is. Final Cut was ridiculous because it completely jumps the shark on the idea of these kills are based on popular urban legends, hence the title. This is just random horseshit. Nobody is being killed by urban legends. There is just somebody going around killing people at a film school. Do they even like try and make up urban legends just for the movie? Uh, not, or no? Is it just like no, a slasher? No. The main character, she all of a sudden at the very very it's got to be the end of the semester because she's like other people have already finished their projects and had them graded and i don't even know what i'm filming yet the fuck how are you that deep in the semester when people have literally gotten their final projects back and graded and you're like ho-hum i don't know what i'm even gonna do mine on yet the fuck but she kind of has this novel idea of like what if i base it on this like murders that happened but it's not really you know it's just it i don't know it was fucking stupid it was entertaining in a trash sort of way. I'm, you know, I won't say it was completely just roll my eyes and sleep through half of it, but uh, it was definitely one of the more ridiculous things that I watched. So now we bounce to fucking Valentine from 2001. Was Valentine 3D a thing? So you are thinking of the remake of My Bloody Valentine, which was in 3D. Okay. And it's honestly not bad. Yeah. I'm interested to go back and maybe revisit that one if we do the original my bloody valentine sometime soon i guess you know cough cough valentine's day is coming up we might do it i don't know yeah we uh, we may as well i want i've been wanting to watch the original anyway so but this one is interesting it's not good but it's interesting on one hand it is very much girl power men are dumb men are the worst men just want to like take advantage every chance they can we're better than that ladies and then on the other hand it's also still just all these women are dumb all these women are shallow all these women are like completely lacking any self-awareness it kind of has it both ways in a weird way the killer is this dude running around 
down in a trench coat wearing a Cupid mask. And it's kind of goofy and not scary at all. The deaths in this one are either really ho-hum boring or they're like the most sloppy. I'm a murderer in a slasher movie, but I'm still just figuring this shit out as I go. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, I guess. But Denise Richards, when she dies, it's the most, oh, is it going to be this one thing? Is he going to do it this way? No, no. Okay. Oh, but I see what he's doing is, oh, it's going to be like this. He's going to kill. He's going to kill her like this. Oh, wait, not that either. Then what's he going to, oh, that's it. That's it. You did that? After all that setup and all these like weird gimmicks, that's how you kill him? The fuck? All right. There was just like weird shit like that. Catherine Heigl is in it before she really, really took off. Marley Shelton is in it. David Boreanaz from fucking Buffy and Angel is in it. Uh, I guess I should also say Bones. That's what people know him from now more than anything. So yeah, this one was, it was goofy. I don't necessarily see us covering this one on our show, except to maybe do like you know, a commentary giggle flicks kind of thing. Cause it was, it was not scary at all. I'd be interested in doing that though. Thematically. <laughs> I think it was like messy enough that there is something to talk about there. Certainly. I just don't think there's anything good to talk about there. Nothing positive. At least I think the messaging of that movie is wild. Cause it is just incel the movie. It's literally just men are the worst. This one dude got all pissy because these girls turned him down when he was a child and he never grew past that one moment and just held that against these women their entire lives and now he's like back to get revenge so it's elliot rogers the fucking movie basically basically. yes but involving like children not even fucking college age people who are supposed to be mature and have their shit together a little bit better this is literally like 12 year olds at a school dance and the nerdy kid is like would you dance with me and the girls were like oh you're gross you're children you should be grown (laughs) past that moment in your life two years from when that happened, let alone when you're like 33. I I don't know. That movie certainly just kind of gave me ick the entire time. It's just, it's weird. It's totally really weird and whiplash and tries to have it both ways and it doesn't fucking work. So as far as like my trash binge watching, that's kind of it. You know, granted, I think I'm going to dig into the rest of the Final Destination movies just for fun because I've literally never seen any of them past two. Two, you know, notorious has the fucking log truck and we all know that shit everybody saw that preview for the entirety of 2002 so anyway yeah and the last thing i'll talk about i listened to a great fucking audiobook my heart is a chainsaw written by stephen graham jones it just came out this august and he has already announced that there is a sequel called Don't Fear the Reaper coming out next July. I've been kind of on a kick of just reading horror. Yeah. Not like comics, but like actual novels. And I was looking up the other day, actually, best modern horror the last year or so. And that was on a lot of lists. Yeah. That one just came out in August. His other novels have all kind of been in that rotation of good modern horror lit as well. This one specifically focuses on on a teenage girl named Jade. She is a Blackfoot Indian who lives in this town in Idaho that is very much the like staple slasher movie kind of town. There is a summer camp where all this bad shit happened years earlier. There is an island that is being completely retrofitted by all these rich people to turn it into this giant massive fancy mansion part of town. 
And it's very much about her dealing with regular teenage bullshit, identity, and just being the weird horror-obsessed kid that doesn't really fit in with everybody else. I think where it gets interesting and tragic and fun, you know, gets your actual, like, horror nerd blood going is she is very much convinced that she is now living in a slasher. That, you know, a slasher movie is bound to happen. That's an interesting premise. Yeah. yeah like, look how tropey our town is. Look how tropey life is. Look how tropey all the, like, history of this area is. There is bound to be a slasher movie that's going to happen at any given time because of all these factors. And I need to be smart enough to like identify all the bits and pieces of that puzzle and how they all fit together. So it's interesting because at no point does she ever posit herself to be the final girl character. You know, she's very much convinced that this new hot girl that lives on the rich part of town is the final girl because she's so perfect in all these final girl kind of ways. But it's interesting because it's one of those on one hand how much is actually happening how much of this is just her delusions how much of this is weird shit that she is creating to kind of get away from the traumas that happened to her in real life and, and there's something to be said too about being self-aware enough to realize you're not the center of the world and especially as a teenager, realizing I'm not the center of the universe. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. And it's generally fun with kind of where it goes. But boy, oh boy, does it leave you on a fucking cliffhanger. And so I'm really glad that he like really quickly announced, oh yeah, no, the next one's coming out in July. I, I would have been kind of pissed if I hadn't picked this up right as he was announcing that there was a new one. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Either way, I definitely enjoyed it. I'm going to check out some of his other stuff. The Only Good Indians is another one that I've heard a lot of good stuff about that I'm going to pick up next, I think. So he's definitely worth checking out. Uh, again, it's Stephen Graham Jones, and the book is My Heart is a Chainsaw. All right, I have talked entirely too much, so now I will bounce it over to you. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad we spent a bit of time talking about your recommendations, specifically the trash horror movies from the odds, because that did bring up some good memories. I probably won't be nearly as long with my recommendations, though. So uh, if you're not listeners, we will get to the movie soon. I do try and make it a point not to do this too, too much or too, too often of revisiting a recommendation that either I brought up earlier or someone else brought up on our past episode. But back on our Prince of Darkness episode with the great Colin Bunn, friend of the show, comic book horror writer extraordinaire, he recommended a book called Clown in a Cornfield by <laughs> Adam Cesar. Okay. I checked it out. I bought it before we moved and I finally got around to reading it. It is marketed as a young adult novel. It is marketed that way. They even say that like 14 to 17 years old can read it, ninth grade and up. Just like Colin said on our episode, don't let that fool you. This is very much a slasher horror book that has surprising amount of a lot to say and plays on a lot of different themes. The general premise is this young girl and her dad move to middle of nowhere kind of small town called Kettle Springs and they move from Philadelphia. And after like some kind of shakeup in their lives that they decide to do this. And when they get there, they find that there is a mascot called Frendo, who is a clown. <laughs> okay. And he's like the mascot of the town. He was part of the factory and everything. And let's just say it goes into some wild slasher territory from there. And the thing about this book is that the young adult, quote unquote, part of it is it is a very easy read. While it is like 350 plus 
plus pages. It's big print. It has like a breakneck speed. Like once it gets going, it goes. And it's a fun, fun read. Uh, it even won the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Young Adult Novel when it came out. I Like I said, I think the young adultness of it is just how easy it is to read and how fast and how quick of a read it is. But it's pretty fucking brutal, some of the kills that happen. And I mean, these are like high school students are the main characters. While Quinn is kind of a focal point in the story, I do like that it kind of jumps perspectives amongst different kids and even some of the adult characters from time to time. And it's really interesting to see like how some of them react differently to the given situation. But it also is very much a book that is a product of its time because it does deal with a lot of themes of like the boomer outlook on life versus the zoomer outlook on life like the current generation outlook on life there's a lot of butting heads the book does a fun play on children of the corn even if you want to go that route because like hey clown in a cornfield corn sure you know there is a little bit of a subversion of that whole plot line and then it goes straight up slasher in ways that are pretty gnarly and pretty fun and terrifying just reading through this book the whole time i'm just like God, this would be a great movie. I looked it up. It's being optioned as a movie, and I really hope it gets a good crew behind it because this could really be a great, just fun slasher movie when it does come out. A title like that is just screaming to be turned into a fucking movie. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if I would even call it a twist. It's very easy to see coming, but it's still interesting. Like, given the... I'm trying to go around this so I don't spoil things, but the purpose of the slasher is trying to do when it's revealed. It is very fascinating, even though you can kind of see it coming. It is more a testament of what is life going to be like in the next 10 to 20 years? Like once the boomers start dying off, what's it going to be like for the Zoomers generation, the people who are teenagers right now? Yeah. Kind of how fucked are things for them, right? Not that. And the thing I do like about the book is it's not necessarily placing blame completely on like boomer generation either. It's just a nice examination. Just kind of calling it what it is. Yeah. The whole dynamic. I mean, there's even some like post Trump America like themes going on in this book, too. Like it was a surprising read it took me like about a week to read but that's because like i have an infant and I, I read a lot slower nowadays but anyone who is even a mildly fast reader could probably knock this book out within like two days two three days it's very easy very quick very fun i have to thank colin this book fucking ruled it's one of the better like horror novels i've read in a while again this is clown in a cornfield by adam cesar hell yeah okay my next recommendation is music related so with it being october and and us having our Spotify playlist, um, you know, I was always just kind of looking for more stuff to throw up on there. Yeah. Came across a band. If you look them up on Rate Your Music, they are described as gothic country and psychobilly, which I think a lot of psychobilly goes hand in hand with horror. Sure. Uh, the name of the album is self-titled and the name of the group is The Coffin Shakers. OK, yeah, I've heard of them before. The Coffin Shakers were found in Sweden. Seemed like they just kind of played underground shows and stuff through the 90s. And I think they put out just singles, maybe one full length album back in 1999 that made a little bit of a splash. But their self-titled album, the one that I've been listening to, actually came out all the way in 2007. Um, And it looks like they haven't put out anything new since then. But I think they're still around and at least touring in like the European scene because I even checked like their Facebook. And granted, like a lot of bands, they, they took a hit during COVID, but they were still kind of posting stuff as of like this August um, and being part of different shows. They describe themselves 
details is what if Johnny Cash was more interested in werewolves, vampires, and the German expressionistic cinema than walking the line. Sure. Meet the coffin shakers. And that is a pretty good summary. Like there is definitely a lot of that gothic country. Like Singer does kind of imitate Johnny Cash in, in some ways. But I, I do think this is also just as much a psychobilly album as it is a gothic country album on the outskirts of country. Like it's not for people who don't necessarily care for country. Don't let that scare you off. They are maybe more country in influence and not capital C country. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It, just to kind of give you an idea, like here's their track listing. Phantoms of the Night, Return of the Vampire, Last Night Down by the Grave, Necromancy, Evil, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, Walpurgis Night, Voodoo Woman, From Here to Hell, King of the Nighttime, The Coffin Shakers Theme, and Transylvania. Okay. Because honestly, you could throw this whole fucking album on our Spotify playlist and it would be appropriate. The tracks that I kind of zeroed in on were Return of the Vampire, Last Night Down by the Grave, Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, which that's like a less than a two minute song, but it's fucking a jam and like makes me think of the, of Brendan Fraser's The Mummy <laughs> anytime I hear it. The crypt is dark, it's midnight, the walls flickering in torchlight, you shouldn't have opened the seal, from the fairs instead of steel, suddenly the torch is out, no one know your whereabouts, can't see a thing at all, try to run but you always fall. Slowly grows and fear overflows. It's the curse that brings you all evil. It's the curse that sent you to hell. Now you wish that you were dead and gone. It's the curse of mummies, too. Yeah. And uh, Walpurgis Night, um, which apparently Walpurgis Night is. I think in Germanic folklore, but it it has to deal with witches going up a mountain and like burning fires and and rituals. In the song, they describe it to like Satan and everything. So it has a lot of the mentality of a Black Sabbath or metal that tries to be demonic for the sake of it, but in under the lens of psychobilly and country. They're a pretty fun group. This album is Pretty easy to listen to. Uh, only 12 tracks. All, a lot of it is pretty groovy. Lyrics are very tongue-in-cheek. Very much of the vampire returns, evil takes over the night, the light gives way to the night sure. writing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I know this is after Halloween, but like... If you're in the mood for Halloween all year long, like throw this album on. It's it's a very nocturnal album, I guess is the best way to describe it. My final uh, recommendation is a comic, um, one that might have probably gone under the radar given the company that's under and the title itself. It is a comic book called Possessive. It's a three issue miniseries. It is under the imprint of Zenoscope. I'll admit I have a guilty pleasure for Zenoscope. For those of you who don't know what, who Zenoscope is, it is a comic book print that does like kind of adult takes on grim fairy tales like actually their main title is called grim fairy tale yes you've brought them up on the show before yeah and a lot of their cover art is very cheesecake hot women who like are hunting vampires and werewolves at night and like robin hood is a superhero living in new york and she like wears skimpy camo and like hunts werewolves in the city it's kind of grindhousey kind of has a little bit of the 90s flair to it but also the funny part is a lot of their comics could technically pass the Bechdel test. And I don't know, they're just fun reads overall. But Zenoscope also puts out horror comics as well, kind of on the side, stuff like this. This is a fun one. It's written by Adam F. Goldberg and Hans Rodenoff. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It follows this artist 
this painter who he's kind of a shithead and a fuck up like he's an alcoholic he keeps saying he's gonna change his ways but he doesn't his wife is separated from him about to file divorce on him she like kind of keeps the kids away from him until he kind of cleans up his act and in this last ditch effort he like sinks the rest of his money into buying this rundown house on the edge of town very tropey very like it's obviously the haunted house that has a murderous ghost yeah. living in it and that's like that's exactly what the setup is it is a haunted house that has like a murderous ghost living in the attic the actual description the official description of the comic itself is what if forgetting sarah marshall meets the grudge <laughs> sure and i'm not kind of ruining anything because they do like solicit this in the first issue it kind of is like this fuck up guy like starting to fall in love with this murderous ghost and vice versa for some reason this murderous ghost won't kill him and like he can't understand her because all she can do is growl and make the noise like the grudge lady makes but it's like fucking hilarious at one point he hires these people to like fix up the house but it's obvious that they just take advantage of him and they're gonna rob him while he's gone they know like they can get away with it no one would believe him because he's such a fuck up around town and so they like go up into the attic thinking they're gonna find all like this priceless artifacts and they get fucking eviscerated by this ghost (laughs) and like the most comical way I try not to bring too much, but at one point, like he decides he wants to hire a priest to do an exorcism on the house. And the priest is very much just like, yeah, but is it a demon? Because if it's just a ghost, it's not going to work and it could end very poorly for us. And the guy's like, yeah, it's totally a demon just lying his ass off and of course everything goes bad something goes awry with the yeah it goes bad shit it is very fast paced because it is only three issues the first issue is very much set up and like trying to get rid of the ghost but then like being stuck with it then issue two is him and the ghost kind of coming to terms with each other and like kind of goes into some ghostbuster areas when what i mean by that is like think ghost blow job (laughs) like from ghostbusters Busted makes me feel good. With him, like, having this relationship with this fucking murderous ghost, he starts turning his life around. His paintings start taking off, and, you know, more shenanigans happens in the third issue that I don't want to give away because it's it's kind of a fun ride. And then, of course, a perfect ghost, supernatural horror fashion. It ends in a way that wraps up the plot of these three issues, but, like, it leaves it open for a sequel series if there ever is sure. going to be one. I kind of hope there is. There's not a whole lot of depth to this series. It's very much just more like wearing its influences on its sleeve and just doing it kind of in a humorous, maybe even sophomoric and surface level way. But it's a nice stress reliever that kind of takes a ghost that would be out of the grudge or the ring, subverting that trope and making it like, well, what if that ghost was just lonely and needed somebody to love and, you know, vice versa. So, yeah, check check out Possessive from Zenoscope. It's a fun ride. And honestly, that's uh, all I'll share for today because. I I know we've spent a long time in recommendations and I want to save some for later. So be on the lookout for that on future episodes. But uh, yeah, I guess we finally got to talk about this movie that scared the fucking shit (laughs) out of me. Uh, Spoiler alert, everyone, I guess. Awesome. So yeah, we are going to be discussing our first Mike Flanagan movie, 2013's Oculus. Hello again. You must be hungry. Tim is a healthy adult who represents no danger to himself or anyone else. And I believe he should be discharged. Hey, little brother. I found it. What do you mean? 
We only have a few days. A few days for what? To keep our promise and kill it. My name is Kaylee Ann Russell. The purpose of today's experiment is to prove that the object behind me is responsible for at least 45 deaths in the four centuries of its recorded existence. We got a new home, so we get new furniture. It's a bit ostentatious, though, don't you think? Hey, Dad, who's that lady in your office today? What lady? We were just kids. We made up a scary story so we wouldn't have to accept the fact that our father was a sick man who killed our mom. Why don't we just end it right now and smash the damn thing? First, I intend to prove that the people I've just described were victims of the supernatural force that resides in that mirror. You want to redeem the family name? You promised me you'd never forget what really happened. I was 10 years old. Betty? Tim? Tim? Snap out of it! So yeah, uh, Oculus, I think any time we do anything Mike Flanagan or James Wan for that matter, I'm just going to have to go in knowing I'm going to get fucking creeped out and scared because uh, <laughs> this is the type of horror that gets me. Slashers do nothing for me. Realistic horror pretty much never does anything for me. I've said it time and time again on this podcast, stuff that scares me for some reason are ghosts to haunted house movies, specifically like when the ghost is either malevolent or straight up demonic. I don't think it has anything to do with my religious upbringing background, but I think it just has more to do with the imagery of it, like the imagery sure. of a ghost ghost is is terrifying to me in a very basic sense but on top of that and you talked about this Aaron you mentioned how like Mike Flanagan specifically with Hill House but even with this movie he is very good at writing relationship dynamic of family in the backdrop of a haunting yeah I feel like Oculus was the first step towards Hill House because Oculus is all about the dynamic especially between the brother and the sister behind a haunted house a malevolent spirit uh, a possessed item if this were the control video game universe the oculus mirror would definitely be an object of power <laughs> yeah that like fucks people up cursed object and this is the type of horror movie that if i were to write a horror movie right now this would be the one i would hope i would write something that does not reinvent the wheel because the idea of a haunted mirror mirrors by nature there's a lot of folklore modern and old around a mirror yeah bloody mary for instance and mirrors are just naturally ripe for like horror especially like possession and ghosts just the idea of you walk out of the way of your mirror but your reflection remains and does a face distortion like that's such a like new age horror trope one of the first things i wanted to ask you because this feels like a cliche tropey movie but it does it so well it, it's not reinventing the wheel but it does it so well that it like despite like oh the idea of a cursed 
mirror isn't that new. There's been lots of movies in general about cursed items or cursed objects, right? Yeah, and I wanted to ask you, have there been a lot of, or a lot of movies about haunted mirrors? Because I feel like Oculus is really the first one that really broke through to me that like actually was well-written. <laughs> yeah, because the obvious answer to your question is the movie Mirrors. Mirrors with Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Which that movie yeah. is fucking terrible. Uh, if anybody wants a fun laugh, definitely check out the Mirrors episode of F This Movie, one of our favorite podcasts. They just covered it recently, and most of the episode is just host Patrick Bromley and Adam Risky just in Kiefer Sutherland voice just yelling, Fuck! Shit! Fuck! The entire time. That's all he does in that movie. He's just a scream obscenity. Shit! So yeah, that's the obvious one. Uh, so there, there have been several different movies that deal with cursed objects. But there is something very specific about mirrors, like you said. The earliest version of a special effect that we can think of. That fucks with your mind to see a world that is exactly our world, but not the same. Backwards world, right? Like, there's literature that deals with that weirdness. You know, obviously Alice in Wonderland is a perfect example. But just the, like, notion of a mirror, that it is a whole different parallel universe to ours in some weird way, you know? Like, just the idea of that is super interesting. And the idea that the version on the other side of that mirror could be evil, could be fucked up, could be malevolent, could want to pull from our universe to make itself more powerful or whatever. Or in this case, like, we see the, the mirror itself is not necessarily just a portal, but the the mirror is a living, tangible creature that is feeding on life force. And that, in some ways, is even creepier. That it's not just a gateway, and that the thing that is evil is lying on the other side of it, like we talked about in Prince of Darkness. Yeah. The mirror itself is the fucking thing that is, like, eating plants and pets, right? And possibly capturing souls and, like, yeah. turning them into malevolent spirits. Yeah. I remember hearing about a folklore, and I, I did not look this up, so I apologize ahead of time, but a folklore about, like, People should cover their mirrors during a thunderstorm because mirrors, A, attract a storm. Heard this. And B, like, bring through spirits during a storm and during nighttime and during darkness. And that, like, if you stare at a mirror for too long, specifically in the dark, you'll start seeing things that you're not supposed to see or, like, the other side, quote unquote. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, before we dig into the, like, the fears that are more deep-seated, like, the actual family drama stuff, the very surface-level fear is, is that idea of a mirror and and just like what makes it so creepy. That's why it is surprising to me that there aren't more horror movies that are just straight up about evil mirrors even. It feels like one of those tropes that you would think would be like overused and millions of movie, horror movies have done it. And see, from my perspective, I think we have exactly the amount of mirror-related horror movies that use the tropes enough without too many movies doing it over and over and over. You know, if we're talking Haunted House or Slasher, like a subgenre like those, you can go in a bunch of different directions with that, but Haunted Mirror 
specifically, you know, haunted items, whatever, you've got the entire world, the bullshit, but a haunted mirror, there's only so much you can really do with that. Another one that I just thought of is like the boogeyman, that also deals with mirrors in weird ways, but I do agree with you that I think this is by far the best execution of that, and I think the entire idea that what you are seeing, what you are perceiving may or may not be reality, very similar to like the image that you're seeing when you're looking in a mirror that is just your brain's perception of your own reflection it is not real so what happens when that is also like uncanny you know yeah and i mean to again to go back to like if this was a horror movie this would be the one that i would hope i would write because that would be the thing like if you ask me to write a horror movie the two things i'm going to go to immediately are either the MacGuffin that i would go to for a horror movie would either be a mirror or mirrors or a haunted doll of some kind and like you know haunted doll possessed doll that has been done between Chucky and sure. The Conjuring and Annabelle and all that shit but I don't know it's just there are just some things that are naturally already creepy and then you could add on top of that and build from it and I mean and maybe kind of to your point there's the right amount of haunted mirror movies is that while there are also a lot of jump scares and other movies that involve a mirror yeah but the mirror isn't the focal point of the movie but the like of it, yeah. but there's so many jump scares especially in ghost movies that involve a mirror I mean hell I was thinking even back to like autopsy of Jane Doe because there is a little bit of sensibilities autopsy of Jane Doe this force comes into your life randomly and it fucks you up and there's really kind of no rhyme or reason it's just evil and you're in the way and that's kind of what happens in Autopsy of Jane Doe but same with this with the mirror but I even remember in Autopsy of Jane Doe one of the jump scares in that movie was one of those mirrors that you put up in a hospital hallway so you can see around the corner when you're going down the corner he sees the image of Jane Doe in that mirror and then when he looks around the corner nobody's there and you think about how many ghost movies slasher movies etc someone sees something that isn't there in the mirror and then they turn around and it's not there so yeah you know like the trope itself doesn't necessarily have to be stretched out to a movie especially now that we already have one and it's called oculus and it is pretty successful being a pretty fucking scary movie to me this was the scariest movie we've done probably since jane doe for like what gets under my skin and my sensibilities okay yeah we were joking offline i mean we've done a lot of fun horror movies lately but not necessarily a ton of really truly scary movies so nice to kind of dip back into this the original premise of the show scaring the shit out of me yeah Yeah. (laughs) i will admit this is one that i passed on theatrically when it came out i think a lot of people did no this movie was successful this movie made 44 million dollars i mean it made money well i mean maybe i don't want to call you a film snob but people who have absolutely that's what a taste people who have a taste in movies i think would have ignored this movie initially one thousand percent fine admitting that my film snobbery got in the way of me enjoying this movie in a theater because i don't think the marketing for this movie was good i went back and like watched the trailers and some of the ads for it the marketing for this movie was bad and then you had wwe studios (laughs) helping front the bill on this so like yeah this is when they were like dipping into making movies and you know what i think it's kind of the same with flanagan's early stuff and i have heard him joke about this before in various interviews how like absentia 
dementia and Before I Wake were both mismarketed very heavily. The groups putting them out paired them up with really weird posters that don't at all convey what the movie's about or show things in the poster that don't happen in the movie. You know, so I think the marketing kind of got in the way of this one because there were just so many supernatural haunting type movies that were out around the same time. But this was one that the word of mouth was good. I heard people that I trusted talking about it after the fact, and they were all just like, Jesus Christ, I wish we had seen this. You know, when it was in theaters, it's really solid. You know, so this is one that I wish I had seen at the time. So as far as like where this movie kind of started, Flanagan actually shot a short film that is the entire nugget of this movie in one little like 30 minute chunk. You can find it on YouTube. It is called Oculus Chapter 3, The Man With the plan and they did that in kind of a cheeky way to make you think like okay there's other chapters of this no not really there's just the one short film right this came out in 2005 he shot it himself so it definitely has a short film feel to it uh which he has also admitted oh yeah i got like a real dp after this so everything looks better (laughs) but you know it's still the entire nugget in a lot of cases word for word the entire scene at the beginning of oculus where karen gillen is like holding up the photos in front of the camera and rattling off the list of all the people who were victims of the mirror prior. That's exactly pulled from the short film. I just rewatched it again today. So there's a lot of connection there, but it is just one guy in what looks to be a storage unit that's like an indoor storage unit with fluorescent lighting, white walls, right? And it's just him with all the cameras set up and then the mirror. And it looks to be close to the same mirror. It's just one of those, you know, you picked it up in the slightly goth spooky section of a home goods but yeah the short film got a lot of acclaim studios were definitely hounding him for a couple of years about wanting to turn it into a feature the sticking point was pretty much every fucking studio that approached him wanted to do it as found footage and he was just like nope 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 i'm good and then intrepid pictures finally was like hey we specifically don't want to do found footage what do you think about that and he's like perfect sounds good so the wild thing is after this short film he put out absentia and before i wake Technically, Before I Wake came out, was made, finished before then. It didn't come out on Netflix until years later, but that movie was out before then. I want to say Hush and Ouija were like right after this. And man, Mike Flanagan fucking works, man. Mike Flanagan stays busy. So this movie and Hush came out the same year. Ouija 2, Origin of Evil, which Ouija 1, bad Blumhouse teenager trash. Ouija 2 pretty fucking fun. I would definitely recommend that to anybody that was immediately dismissive of it being a Ouija sequel, but Origin of Evil is pretty solid. But then he did Gerald's Game for Netflix, he did Doctor Sleep, which is fucking amazing, and then of course he did Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor, and Midnight Mass that just came out. And that's a lot of boom, 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 oh shit, you shot, you know, anywhere from seven to nine hours worth of stuff in a year. And pretty much all of it, at least from Oculus on, including the TV shows, is really fucking good. Uh, It looks like Hush Before I Wake and Ouija Origin of Evil, or Ouija Origin of Evil, all came out in 2016. Yeah. That's insane. They all dropped right at the same time. Yeah. And then Gerald's Game was only a year later. Then he had Hill House in 2018, Dr. Sleep in 19, Bly Manor 2020. And just dropped Midnight Mass, and he's already has the Midnight Club about to start production, or maybe already is in production. 
Yeah. He stays busy. And it's very impressive because the quality of all of his stuff is A+. plus. He gets the sensibilities of what makes a haunting creepy and scary. I brought this up a couple times. Some of the best, especially Supernatural, some of the best horror has tragedy and soul to it. And the way he he shows that in this movie is through the family, the tragedy, and then the brother and sister dynamic. It's one thing to just have a haunted house and like scenes of a jump scare. It's another when you also have on top of that, this whole dynamic between the family. And I saw this online as a way to describe this movie and I thought it was perfect. This is an evil fucking movie. And what I mean by that is... (laughs) Beyond her explaining the history of the mirror, she never reveals and it's never revealed where the mirror actually came from. She just says that the first hint of it popping up was in the 1750s. That's it. And I remember reading that Flanagan during production and when he was writing the movie and kind of even based off the short is he wanted to keep it unknown. He's like, sometimes just evil exists in the world and there's not a reason for it. Yeah, it's kind of like what he was saying. And that's the same thing with this mirror. Like, I'm not interested in where it came from. I'm not interested in like the what and the why and the how it's just this is what it is and it's terrorizing this family you know it terrorized them in the past and now it's come back and going to terrorize them in the present and that's so often where i think sequels specifically get off into the deep end in a bad way two many sequels solely exist to like explain the first movie good example i love insidious Super fun movie. It's a different take on the idea of a haunting with a family kind of movie. But the sequel literally just exists to explain all the weird shit and scenes and instances and scares in the first movie and just kind of show you like, oh, this is what was actually happening behind all those. And it entirely deconstructs the first movie in a way that makes the first movie less satisfying when you go back to rewatch it, but also, two doesn't functionally work as a movie at all. So, yeah, I agree with him that I'm so less interested in Oculus if we learn about the entire history of the fucking mirror and figure out, like, what the evil is behind it. It's just a fucked up evil cursed mirror. We don't need to know. Yeah. Well, and and, I mean, I just made this whole entire argument for the original Hollow Halloween 2 and all the sequels it spawned going through the Halloween franchise because like it, it did that. It just tried to go back and explain like, why is Michael Myers invulnerable? Why is he going after Lori? Yeah. It's like, we don't need to know that. That's not what makes the original Halloween so fascinating and terrifying. And that's the thing, like Oculus is such a breath of fresh air because it feels like, at least from the marketing, like when you look at the poster and the, and the trailers, like you were saying, the marketing is kind of not what the movie actually is. It feels like a movie that's the start of a franchise, right? Yeah. It's trying to be like the haunting of Connecticut where they made a second one and it was terrible. And I'm still fucking shocked that there is no sequel to this. Exactly. And that's exactly what I was about to say. I am surprised too because this feels like a movie that I'm not saying it should get a sequel. I'm glad it doesn't have one, but it feels like it should get one just kind of given the marketing and, and the way studios work nowadays and, and how they've worked historically with horror movies. God help us. I hope they never do try and make a sequel or anything to this. If they were going to actually make a follow up to this movie, just tell the story of one of the past victims that she showed in like the montage of holding up all the pictures of the past victims of the mirror. Again, don't explain how the mirror actually works and where it came from. Just have it be like a period piece and how 
it like killed this person or their family, yeah. you know, and you could do different scares that way if you want. But like, I don't think this movie needs a prequel or a sequel. And then by Oculus 4, you can bring it into space where they've built a space <laughs> station to isolate it. Then it will just be people tripping balls and seeing visions of dead people in space. Every franchise like that needs to go to space eventually just for shits. And after credit scene, we'll have a Freddy Krueger laugh in the mirror. So yes. there you go. You will see Freddy and Jason jerking each other off through the mirror. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very surprised that there's not a sequel to this already considering it's a Blumhouse. But yeah, this was pretty much a straightforward, how do we adapt this? How do I make this different from the short film? Well, let's tell a before and after kind of story. I like all of the cross editing between the timeline. That stuff is so well handled and that's something that he yeah. does so fucking well in Doctor Sleep and the haunting of shows. You know, I, I love the way, especially once the two timelines are kind of overlapping where you've got actors from both timelines crossing past each other you're kind of seeing the same events played out but it's switching back and forth between the actors to show them in different spots like that's great yeah like even the kid self sees his adult in the doorway at one point yeah what's really interesting is because the way this mirror operates is it tricks you and fucks with you like makes you hallucinate yeah it's all about fucking up your perception or straight up possesses you but in the case of the two children even as adults it really just feeds them illusions until like what happens at the end happens but the thing that's really cool is the way mike flanagan decided to like shoot this and and write it is that it does it to the viewer as well it's almost like the mirror is tricking the viewer as well because you don't know when the two timelines actually bleed together at somewhere along the line they start kind of overlapping by the final 20 30 minutes they are completely like okay when the kid self experiences this the adult self is also experiencing this they are seeing their ghost versions of their parents. How did we wind up here? When did this actually happen? You don't know, just like the characters don't know like when the mirror actually like tricked them into like seeing these things and what's reality and what isn't that's what also is pretty masterful about this because a lot of the jump scares in this movie Bruh, the jump scares fucked me up <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the scares in this movie in general wouldn't be nearly as impactful if you were always a hundred percent sure that what you're seeing is real or is not real. And because the leads are always being tricked, the audience by proxy is also being tricked. And so you're just more actively being brought into the movie and wrapped up in it in that way, which is a lot of fun. Like I, I like when, you know, the audience is a little more involved with the story that's being told. Um, that's just kind of a fun way to really keep people engaged. But, you know... All of that aside, I think what makes so much of Mike Flanagan's stuff just fucking work so well is how he manages the actual emotional core of the characters. It's already tough to do that and pull it off, especially with trauma that a lot of people have dealt with in real life. Just stuff that a lot of people can already relate to that you've seen done in movies so many times, but I think it's just the context of how he deals with it within the weird story that he's typically telling that makes it all so much more impactful. This movie specifically is about dealing with family trauma and abuse and how, like, when you're an adult you come to terms with the realities of like who your parents were or you don't <laughs> or you don't yeah and that's the real fear yeah yeah but it creates 
just confusion and shame and anger. You know, you can also look at this movie as, you know, a story about managing addiction or mental health and how that's really fucking difficult when people in your family that you love are standing in the way of your own progress with their own bullshit issues. Yeah. The brother's entire journey to recovery is being kind of stymied by the sister who is then just immediately feeding and creating that loop back around right after she picks him up after like what like he was in the mental health facility for like years over a decade he went in as a boy and now he's an adult but then as soon as she gets him out it's like oh yeah by the way all that shit actually happened let's go yeah we're taking out this mirror tomorrow get in and he's just like what (laughs) yeah so it's interesting the the brother is the one who went under treatment for you know all those years and to the point where he actually even like he forbade his sister to come and visit because he's like i needed to work things out yeah his own sister didn't even see him for all this time and she went to the foster system and it's interesting as adults to watch them interact because he is now like trying to keep the cool level-headed and explaining everything away as this no these are like fuzzy memories that your brain is playing tricks on you like and he's even quoting like all the psychological treatment quotes that he probably memorized with that doctor to explain away all these weird phenomena and then on the opposite end of the spectrum his sister she's convinced of the reality of, of this evil mirror but also you can tell she never quite grew up yeah. or not grew up but like she never quite actually treated the trauma because her brother had to get treated because he was in this facility all those years where she was put in the foster system and just her idea of confronting the trauma is destroying the mirror but she actually never really like dealt with what actually happened with her parents well it's kind of exactly what i mentioned earlier about titane that not letting past trauma define the entire rest of your life the brother is actively trying to like move on, have a new life, start over, and figure out what to do from here, and she's still stuck, and her entire life up to this point has revolved around that one moment growing up. Everything that has been driving her has been about that one moment, and she's not moved past it. The real tragedy of it is she turns out to be right, but her lead up to (laughs) her obsession, she is right but handling it in all the wrong ways, while the brother is wrong but handling it in all the right ways, if that makes sense yeah they never can get it together enough to actually defeat the mirror either yeah and on the brother's side of it too the entire idea of regression and just that fear of regression that your mental health your mental illness your state of trauma like whatever you want to call it all of that might be re-emerging just the idea in the back of your head of shit 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 this is happening again you know i thought i was getting better i'm not getting better turns out i can't handle whatever this is Just that general, like, fear and anxiety and panic when you have that moment of self-realization where you're like, shit, I cannot let this happen again. This cannot happen again. I cannot go back to how things were. That is terrifying. That really happens, and you can really feel that anxiety through the screen when they find that the plants have wilted and they find that all the cameras are facing each other and they don't remember placing them in that way that they were facing each other in front of the mirror. And we can get into the cast in a second, but like the way he plays that as the character, like you just feel like he's basically about to have a panic attack or he is having a panic attack because like he doesn't say anything for like 10 minutes after that while the sister's like, I was right. I knew I was right. 
Before we dig into the cast, let me do my spiel, by the way. If you can't tell, this movie uh, scared the crap out of me. <laughs> if ghosts and haunting and stuff like that doesn't bother you, then yeah, check this movie out. It's a pretty good movie. It's way heavier than I was expecting. Yeah. Like I said, it's an evil movie, given like how it ends and like what happens to the family, the nature of the mirror and everything. But if ghosts and stuff do really bother you or just horror in general really bothers you, uh, I wouldn't I would stay clear of Oculus for a little while and maybe get a little bit of a thicker skin. The imagery of any time a ghost is on screen where they have the mirror eyes, insanely creepy, especially given that like towards the back end of the movie where like all the past victims start showing up. Those mirror eyes haunt me in my sleep. So, (laughs) but then on top of that, you deal with the deeper fears of this movie of trauma, the people in your family that you want to love and you want to depend on being the perpetrators of the trauma. I mean, hell, there's even a bit of failure of the adults. Because as children, they try multiple times to reach out to the outside world to get help and either the mirror stops them or like their neighbor is just going to always take the side of the dad or the mom instead of listening to the children who are obviously like something's going on in her house. And man, talk about a childish way to handle. Hey, we're out of food. Hey, mom or dad, you need to go grocery shopping. We're out of food. I'm 12. He's nine. We don't know how to do this. Yeah. And that's some of the most gut-wrenching stuff because, you know, granted, again, the parents are being fucking haunted, possessed, whatever, by, like, a evil mirror. But just the notion of parents being that self-absorbed into whatever, whether it is their own personal bullshit, hobbies, whatever, drug addiction, gambling, the fact that the parents are, like, so wrapped up, I mean, especially, like, Rory Cochran in this, they are so wrapped up in that that their kids are fucking starving. That's terrifying. That's just such a depressing and scary thing that you know happens in real life all the time. It's just not a haunted mirror that's the cause, but it's drugs, it's whatever else, right? Yeah, and I thought about this. I thought knee-jerk response would be like, okay, you kids obviously see that something's wrong. The mom, spoiler warning, but we're going to be pretty open with spoilers through this discussion already. You find that the mom is like chained up in the bedroom eating fucking glass you find that the dad is talking to a ghost lady that isn't is sometimes not there sometimes is there has mirror eyes he's all of a sudden like being a huge dick to you threatening you and stuff like that no one's going to get the food like everyone's starving why don't you just you and your brother leave the house and just run away and like or whatever right that would be the knee-jerk response but when you think about it even as a 12 year old where would you go like i mean yeah you could maybe go to a friend's house but like then the parents are gonna just be like okay well, let's go talk to your parents. The police are just going to be like, okay, let's go talk to your police. It's that standard thing of nobody believes kids. Yeah. Well, I'll take it back. It's wild because everybody either a hundred thousand percent believes kids. No questions asked. <laughs> Satanic panic. <laughs> right. Or nobody believes kids. So which is it? Well, it's what they want to hear. Exactly. I think. That, that's what I was going to get at. It entirely depends on whether or not what the kids are saying somehow reinforces what the adults' beliefs are. So if you're living in a weird state of fear, and let's talk about the last couple years with all the fucking QAnon shit, right? If you spend your entire existence in a weird state of fear that somebody is coming to get you, somebody in this country, the liberals, the whoever, right, the brown people, commies, the socialists, 
whatever label you want to fucking put on just anybody that's not who you are anybody that is other to you is somehow coming for you so then if you have a fucking kid or some random person on the internet that's like oh yeah no i'm the voice of reason i have the real inside shit listen to me if they're telling you the same exact thing yes you're gonna fucking fall in and believe them because it just reinforces what you already are looking for essentially but then as soon as it goes against that the kids say hey my parents are being abusive and that neighbor's like dave are you sure okay whatever you know everything seems to be fine here kids you walk away so it's just one of those weird and and horror movies i think lean back on that a lot and that gets a lot of criticism and people constantly say like why would anybody believe this kid right away or why would anybody not believe these kids or not bother to look into it but i mean that's how real life is as much as that is a convenient plot thing for a movie to exploit that's most often how real life ends up so eh. <laughs> it is what it is to also build on that i think the other thing is going back to like oh well why won't they just run away your house is your world your house and your parents taking care of you still is kind of your world and they obviously love their parents and it was obvious that before this mirror and before they moved into this house the parents loved them and showed that because you see them interact before shit really hits the fan yeah and yeah the dad might have worked a little too much in his office but otherwise he was cool with the kids the mom was loving to the kids they seem to have a decent relationship there were some little deep-seated things you know like the mom has that scene where like she kind of like looks at her c-section scar and like she even asks her husband like it's like a little bit of a body image thing or and he's just like no i still absolutely find you attractive and so like they have a healthy relationship but then the mirror fucks it all up but then you could also like go into that route of like well does the mirror also really digs deep for that like those deep-seated insecurities and really just like amplifies them to an insane degree that it puts possesses you yeah which granted the movie never really says that or describes that or goes into that but like that's just one of those things that something i appreciate about this movie is it does leave a lot open in regard to the mysterious nature of this mirror but we'll get back to that because there was a character i wanted to bring up that aaron i don't think you even caught and we talked about off air so we'll we'll talk about it in a second but let's get a little bit into this cast because this is a this is kind of an interesting cast especially given that Karen Gillan is one of the star roles, and this is pre-Guardians of the Galaxy, right? This was right when she was breaking. So she had been on some Brit TV before, most notably Doctor Who. That was her first big breakout thing, was she was one of the Doctor Who sidekicks for a few seasons. And this was her first U.S. role in Oculus. She was also in a movie called Outcast that I've mentioned on the show before, which was kind of an interesting weird folk occult scottish horror movie from 2010 but yeah like as soon as she was done with this production she shaved her head and went to do guardians of the galaxy they literally like had to put her in a wig for a few pickup shots to finish this movie so you know she did guardians of the galaxy she was in the big short in a valley of violence the jumanji reboot movies she was in the last two avengers movies and then most recently gunpowder milkshake so she's doing great she's kicking lots of ass annalise basso plays the young version of her she has been in several of mike flanagan's other things as well the brother tim is played by brendan thwaites who is also in the signal maleficent gods of egypt pirates 5 and the titans show that is currently on hbo 
I'll be honest, Brendan Thwaites is maybe the weak link of the cast member to me. He's fine. I think he serves the role fine enough, but he just does yeah. kind of stand around looking incredulous through a lot of it. The best part of the movie is when he has that panic attack when he realizes it's, yeah. it's happening all over again. But otherwise, I would agree with you. That one moment he kind of shines through. Garrett Ryan plays the young version of him. Well, between Annalise and Garrett, pretty decent child performances Again, I feel like we have to shout that out every time we watch a horror movie where the kids put in a good performance. And you know what? That's another really, really good mark that I will give Mike Flanagan is I think he does a great job with kid actors. Between Jacob Tremblay and Before I Wake and then Kylie Curran and Dr. Sleep and then all the fucking kids and the Hill House show, he's really, really solid with kid actors. But yeah, yeah, from there we've got, as the parents, Katie Sackhoff plays Marie, and obviously we all know her from Halloween Resurrection, which yep. we've talked about recently. <laughs> yeah, JK, she's mostly known for Battlestar Galactica, where she played Starbuck in the reboot of that. When it comes to Katie Sackhoff, it's kind of interesting to see her in this role and even, honestly, even see her in Halloween Resurrection and what was, I guess, one of her earlier roles. Yes. Because I know her from Battlestar Galactica, and I know her from one of the Riddick movies. Yes. And she's a badass and both those properties so i always picture her as like an action girl style actress but her popping up in this movie and getting fucking terrorized and then becoming a possessed feral animal basically uh was pretty interesting swing it's a different role yeah yeah and she does a pretty good job she's also in Longmire, and then she's obviously in star wars the clone wars and rebels voicing bo katan and then she's yeah. playing that character in live action in mandalorian and she's in some space action show on Netflix right now called Another Life. So, yeah, she generally has that hard-ass battle girl vibe, typically. So it is a different role for her in this. Uh, I also noticed that she is in The Haunting in Connecticut 2, colon, Ghosts of Georgia. Yep. (laughs) I referenced that earlier. Which is maybe one of the worst fucking movie titles I have ever heard in my goddamn life. Just call it Ghosts of Georgia and be done with it. Okay, yeah, The Haunting in California, Idaho Boogaloo. Like, get the fuck out of here. I'm surprised there's not an Oculus 2 behind the window or something like that. That's kind of like... Oculus 2 through the looking glass. Yeah, Yeah, The Father is played by... By Rory Cochran. He was in Dazed and Confused, Empire Records, The Scanner Darkly, Public Enemies, Argo, White Boy Rick, and he is also in Antlers, which is finally about to fucking come out. And from there, the only other person that I threw in to my notes is Kate Siegel, who has been in pretty much every single thing he's done since this. She has co-written some of his other projects. Like, they've worked together for a while. They are married now. She plays one of the mirror ghosts named Marisol. And I'll kind of let you explain what you were getting at here, because earlier off mic, you mentioned that she is kind of the weird hidden villain of this movie, and 
I didn't necessarily pick up on that detail. So explain this theory to me. I'm, I'm curious to know what you're getting at and what I'm missing here. Because to me in the movie, she is just one of the background ghosts. She is specifically the woman that they refer to who had a miscarriage. She is also the ghost that we see kind of seducing Rory Cochran in his office, giving him so, weird yeah. psychic head massages and stuff. Well, so that's the thing. Marisol, anytime she shows up on this movie, is pretty fucking terrifying because it's in the background. She has those mirror eyes, so you either see like the reflection of the light, so it always looks white. She always looks menacing. Very good body acting from Kate Siegel anytime she's on screen. Pretty terrifying. <laughs> it's kind of funny because I remember the Blumhouse Wiki also like lists her as the main villain behind the mirror and Oculus, but I think the reason why like she could constitute as a quote unquote a villain in this or like the main villain is she's the first ghost to appear. She's the one that's most on screen. Anytime a ghost is there, she's the one that really starts things rolling with fucking the family up. Like you're saying, she seduces Rory and this is where like it popped up. I think it's when she does the run through of all the past victims of the mirror. She mentions Marisol Chavez as the latest victim and explains how she died and all that. Later on, right before Rory is about to crack, Kate Siegel's character is going in as all office because she's sort of suspecting affair an affair but like also sort of being fucked with by the mirror and she finds in his work notes that kind of sure. jack torrent style like has written marisol everywhere he's written her name over and over yeah <laughs> all work and no play makes me a dull boy like yeah written her name everywhere and then i want to say too that marisol is the one who directly like kind of fucks with Katie Sackhoff's character to the point where like she kind of has that weird hallucination where her own C-section scar is reopened and like is pouring out blood. And I think there's something with the connection between Marisol having a miscarriage and then the mom like having these two children and obviously there's some kind of insecurity with her with the c-section scar yeah there could be like a specific vengeance there because this woman has what she covets yeah yes and then anytime like you hear them whispering the ghostly whispering i'm assuming it's marisol because it's always feminine and it is always in response to something like the dad trying to call the phone but then like he hears her whispering and decides to lock his wife in the bedroom and chain her up instead i don't know it just it seems like she is the focal point of the lasser glass she seems to be like the manifestation of the mirror itself sure she's like the avatar that the mirror has chosen yeah yeah and maybe like it's always whoever the last victim was she also is showing up and fucking with the adults along with their parents i guess they're like mirror doppelgangers like that's the thing like and this is one of those things that you can just kind of leave it up to whatever the viewer wants to say is like is the mirror like capturing their souls and like corrupting them and turning them into vengeful spirits or is it just fucking with them and using like mirror doppelgangers but I don't know it feels to me like Marisol herself is an evil spirit that's possessed by the mirror is my kind of headcanon and you know like that's just me like digging a little bit deeper than like what's actually shown on screen but I don't know just between the whispering and like the dad's obsession with her specifically and even the mom there being a, a weird kind of child rearing connection to them and her being the ghost that shows up the most and the first ghost to show up i kind of view her as the ghostly villain of this movie yeah that's a very good notion and i I think it's totally valid i mean that's a totally appropriate way to kind of read what her relationship is in 
the story and why they didn't just have somebody yeah. else each time, right? That is a good tie back to the family itself. And plus, if you really want to go down the route of this doesn't have a happy ending and like make it even more sinister, yeah, the mirror does capture souls and like they are now evil spirits that fuck with people. You know, that that's a worse existence, I think, than just dying. Yeah. If you die and then the mirror like has control of you and yeah, I don't know. It, that, that just makes more sense to me than anything else. Yeah, gotcha. Some other interesting details, I guess. At the auction, the mirror is said to come from the Levesque estate, which you being a wrestling fan, tell me what that means. Tell me what that's a reference to. Triple H. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Apparently yeah. Triple H's real name, so that was kind of a weird Easter egg that they threw in. Now I wonder if the mirror fucked with him and Stephanie McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is headcanon. The idea of the mirror like actively seeking out life forces to absorb and then it kind of starts with you know the quote low-hanging fruit like karen gillen says in house plants and then it kind of moves up to pets and then it kind of moves up to you know people from there once it's strong enough but the idea not just that it slowly saps the life away from pets but that the pets disappear at some point and just aren't found dot 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 yep <sighs> spoiler alert another dead dog does the dog die.com <laughs> why yes it does in oculus granted you never see the dead body of the dog thankfully and it kind of all happens off screen but yeah yeah another horror movie another dead dog it's an interesting notion of what exactly happens there well and then again that goes back to like i do think the mirror absorbs their soul because it doesn't quite like make them shriveled up or like physically weakened or anything it just completely destroys them mentally makes them go psychotic and like murder each other sure kind of like the shining with the, the outlook hotel i guess this is like a totally different philosophical question but i guess the question about what happens to the pets totally depends then on do you believe that animals have souls I think that's kind of where, like, you get into that fundamental question. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know about that. I think the mirror feeds on maybe, like, life force and, like, it physically feeds on the pets eventually, like, when it's taken everything from them. But with people, it feeds on their psyche until it breaks them, possesses them. They murder. I feel like the murder is part of the ritualistic way it feeds then at that point. Like I said, it's still a super interesting notion. Yeah. So, like, the way we see all this, the way it's set up is Karen Gillan, Kaylee Russell, she actually buys their old house back because like the house obviously went on the market after the parents died and tried to murder their children apparently it stayed in the market because no one wants to buy a fucking murder house but she went ahead and bought the house and kind of kept it empty except for like plants and did all this setup with all this stuff with the lighting and the cameras and the plants and makes this makeshift trap basically that like is the fail safe where like if she doesn't hit it within 30 minutes a large anchor with weights is going to slam down from the ceiling and assumingly break the mirror and yeah. shatter it talk about such a childlike never dealt with this trauma but like now you have adult resources and you know how to act like an adult <laughs> yeah instead of just finding a way to just get the mirror and before it can like activate its defenses or whatever fucking throw it off a building or something like and no you have to go out of this way to prove that your dad wasn't crazy to prove that your brother 
wasn't crazy. And then you're going to like you were going to get what you want from the mirror and then you're going to destroy it. But that's the folly of this entire movie is they wait too long. They let the mirror do its thing and then they become like trapped in it just as much as anyone else did. She thinks she has it all planned out and she really doesn't when what she should have done is just break the fucking mirror immediately. And, you know, like it sucks that her dad would be forever known as this murderer who went insane and killed his wife and then tried to kill the kids. But like, you know, you did the thing like I feel like she would have been able to find relief from just breaking the mirror eventually. But like she got too obsessed with almost getting revenge on it while also proving that she was right and that her dad and her brother are innocent. But like, I don't think it's more like, oh, like, let's prove their innocence. I think it's more like, no, I want revenge on this fucking mirror and I want to be right. And I want to almost like shove it in its face like it's a person. That's what causes the whole thing to go tits up and like the tragedy that happens at the very end of this movie yeah it's definitely one of those you know it's all about coulda not shoulda yeah this is kind of a minor gripe but i hate poorly photoshopped family or historical photos in movies (laughs) that's one of those things that like kind of gets under my skin a little bit it's like uh, you couldn't do a better job with this photoshop or just get actual historic photo of somebody right i was kind of hoping they just found weird deaths through history like actual weird us and just retconned the actual history that like oh it's this haunted mirror that fucked them up but then no they didn't it was all fictional yeah it was the kind of photoshop jobs that you do on your phone where you put your face on a historic painting just okay good enough another criticism i would lay at this movie is i think some people i who get what's going on I do think some people might get annoyed or might not like the whole bouncing between the two timelines. It worked for me because it just felt like we are just like the brother and sister. We're trapped in the the mirror's illusion. I fundamentally don't think this movie works if you try to do it linearly. Exactly. And I agree with you, but I do. I would say that there are probably people out there who kind of get lost in, in the plot. Well, there are. Once they like shot the movie, this studio is literally like, um, can you like edit this linearly? We don't know that we like a the cross cutting between the timelines i'm glad that they didn't get their way because this yeah. movie is better for it in my opinion and from what i remember hearing with flanagan in an interview he mentioned like oh yeah we independently went and tested this movie for shits and the audience scores that we got with our cut of the movie were vastly better than once we re-edited the movie to be linear at the studio's request So yeah, I I fundamentally don't think the movie works if you try to do the entire thing linearly. There is a Bollywood remake of this movie that came out in 2017 called Zahak, a.k.a. Dobara, colon, See Your Evil. It was directed by Prawal Rahman, and Flanagan Executive produced it as well. Yeah, apparently Flanagan produced it. Yeah, I um, I'm curious to check it out now just for shits. Yeah, I kind of want to check it out myself. Just the idea that they shot all this shit with mirrors. Mirrors are such a fucking pain in the ass, dude. When it comes to like shooting anything, mirrors are such a pain in the ass. The amount of having to shoot or light in ways that you're not catching the camera or other equipment or other crew people or the opposite sides of sets. Working with mirrors is such a giant pain 
the ass. So I applaud them for that. That takes a lot of planning. That takes a lot of knowing exactly what kind of shots you want. That also takes a DP that's really fucking good. And I will say, Michael Feminari, who shot most of Flanagan's work, including, again, Dr. Sleep, Hill House, Midnight Mass, his work has been excellent so far. Uh, especially in Dr. Sleep. There is some fucking amazing shit in Dr. Sleep. I like the Newton Brothers score. I think it's pretty solid in this one. They've also done basically all of Flanagan's stuff. I like the look of the ghosts in this as well. I'm usually kind of tepid on most modern ghost design because they are typically just, you know, pale people. But I think the combination of that with the fluorescent lighting, with the mirror eyes, like it's a little more otherworldly in a way that I can kind of get behind and dig. And anytime like you see the ghosts, a lot of it too is again body acting like they look yeah. more menacing when they're on screen as a ghost one of the creepiest images that's still kind of in my mind and it's towards the end of the movie is when all the ghosts are hovering over him and they all open their mouths and all the alarms that she had set to like remind them to like eat and drink instead of like them screaming or howling it's just the alarms going off out of their mouths that was a really good fucking image and speaking of scares I think another thing that was unsettling and these aren't necessarily jump scares it was just more like creepy unsettling like not hard to watch but you know like anxious when she takes a bite out of the apple and then she thinks she bit into the light bulb and was like pulling out shards of it out of her mouth that was fucking brutal that was basically my last note was that the fucking light bulb scene is the worst to me in this movie like oh man that is a thousand percent the scene that makes me cringe the worst that made me cringe a lot um and then the last kill which we won't give away the very end you know you could probably see where it's going but like go watch this movie just to see how you get there because it's pretty interesting um and pretty creepy and extremely tragic and evil and dark so if we were going to talk about like final theories as well another theory to float around is like and i thought about this in those last few moments where the parents hesitate where the mom stops strangling her and the dad hands the son the gun pulls the trigger for him to kill himself i wonder like is that the parents kind of lucidly breaking through out of the mirror's influence saving their own children or is that the mirror just fucking with the kids so hard that like it'll claim them later as a victim or something like kind of almost trying to turn them into batman to like swear vengeance on it get them obsessed with the notion of it so that they come back later yeah yeah and the later theory is a lot more fucked up and within the nature of the mirror and then the other thing is how the mirror operates how it possesses people or whatever because alan russell when he's full ghost possession mode he says a quote that's very much almost feels like the mirror talking directly to the children where he says i've met my demons i have many i've seen the devil he is me that line also makes me wonder like does the mirror just literally like amplify the evil that is within man sure and that's why everyone goes fucking insano and like hallucinates and either kills themselves or kills other people yeah john am i the demons like (laughs) (laughs) yeah that it only pulls out what was already there to begin with yeah yeah and did you notice i can't quite remember did either the parents ever like lay hands on the boy or was it always only the girl his older sister i think it was most mostly Kaylee. I don't remember anybody yeah. really directly 
putting hands on Tim. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost to the point where like they know Tim is there, but like they don't quite go after him like right when they could because like they both try and strangle Kaylee. And I thought that was an interesting thing too. Like I, didn't, I haven't thought much deeper than that, but like, you know, that's another thing to keep in mind if you watch this movie. Yeah, it could just be that she's more directly in front. You know, she is kind of the one who's taking action. She's the one who's more proactive. She is the one who's yeah. like constantly trying to step in the way and defend him. So it could just be the fact that she's always there front and center. Yeah, and the mirror maybe like sees her as the bigger threat too. Yeah. So to wrap it all up like this movie, Scare the Shit Out of Me, it's a solid ghost movie with a lot of family trauma exploration. It's a dark movie. It is not what I expected when I saw WWE's logo like flash <laughs> over my screen. Also, just like you were saying, the marketing of this movie just made it seem like another ho-hum, like even mid-aughts supernatural horror movie. And it really isn't. It is, this feels like something different. Yeah. Last detail I will throw out there is the movie filmed in fall of 2012 for three weeks in Fairhope, Alabama, where two of our good <laughs> college friends grew up. Yep. Director Zach Lamplew has been on our show twice. Yep. He is from Fairhope. So Fairhope has actually had a couple of horror movies and low budget indie stuff shoot there. Uh, most notably Get Out filmed in Fairhope. Yes, I didn't realize that. Yep. So yeah, yeah. Good shit. So I'm glad we finally got around to doing this i have certainly been a huge fan of flanagan's work over the last couple of years so i'm glad that we finally got around to covering something of his i do want to watch more of his stuff now but i'm he knows how to like shoot the stuff that fucking comes from my nightmares (laughs) yeah and unfortunately like i would love to cover dr sleep eventually we definitely need to like do the shining first right and all of his tv shows so far have been really fucking good good but it's just not necessarily the format of our show maybe if we launch a patreon or something we can do that as uh yeah Yeah. (laughs) let's just say if i had more time to like edit or if i found you know maybe a more streamlined easier way to edit we could certainly record more often this wouldn't be like an every other week thing let alone not being able to dig out and do more side project stuff like that specifically like i would love to do kind of a deep dive into like some horror tv shows but that that takes a lot of time. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I'm glad that we got to cover at least this movie of his. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to get to some more of his stuff later down the road. And uh, fun that we actually got to something that actually kind of scared the shit out of you a little bit. Yep. Looking forward to it. Cool. So we've got a couple of great episodes lined up for the rest of the year. Um, We've got a great Thanksgiving episode planned for this year. We've got a great guest that's coming on pretty soon. And uh, yeah, otherwise, you know, this is a little bit late, but you know, happy Halloween, I guess. Late Halloween. Hope everybody had a wonderful Halloween. I guess I'll put it that way. Yeah. Anywho. All right. Cool. Cool. So yeah, this is another episode in the can for Watch If You Dare, horror movie podcast hosted by me your movie monster boy aaron and my cowardly co-host derek in which we dissect the fears phobias and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike as always you can find us on facebook and twitter 
at Watch If You Dare. Uh, we also have our Spotify playlist that is still going to be up. That is linked to our Twitter as well, so you can find it there. Yeah, like I said uh, during our, our recommendations, I just added some more music to it, including the Coffin Shakers. So always check that out. Hell yeah. Beyond following us on Apple and, and Podchaser and all that stuff, which you should, I also claimed our show on Good Pods. So if you use Good Pods as your podcasting platform, please be sure to follow us on there and rate and review us there as well. It's a new platform that we're now actively a part of. So yeah, shout out to your brother, Jesse Mansfield, yep. for his bumps at the beginning end of each episode, especially thank him for once again doing that season of spoop bump that we used during October. Yep. You can find more of his stuff on Bandcamp at Party Gator, Opossums, Big Clown, and all the other associated acts he has there. So check out his music, throw him a couple of bucks. Beyond that, any other final thoughts, Derek? Yeah, Aaron. I've met my Sallies. I have many. I've seen the Sally. She is me. Uh...